Some of the greatest stories that we know are stories of people who were the very first to do something. People like Edmund Hillary, uh, first man to scale Mount Everest and come back. Uh, or Roger Bannister, first man to run faster than the four-minute mile. Or Roald Amundsen, first man to reach the South Pole. And of course, Neil Armstrong, first man to become a moonwalker long before Michael Jackson ever moonwalked. <laughs> and all these first man stories are inspiring, <clears throat> but who was the first man to become a Christian? Who was the first man to believe in the risen Christ? Well, that's an inspiring story too, and not least because the very first person to become a Christian was a woman, and we know her as Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was a Jewish woman who traveled with Jesus as one of his followers and who witnessed his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. Mary's mentioned 12 times in the Gospels. That's more than most of the apostles. And the name Magdalene probably means she came from the town of Magdala, a small fishing village on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, that ancient town of Magdala has recently been rediscovered and excavated, and uh, some of us visited that fascinating biblical site a few years ago in Israel. Now, the Gospels identify Mary Magdalene as the first witness to testify to Jesus' resurrection. She was the one who told the disciples the amazing good news on that first Easter Sunday. I have seen the Lord, she said. And because of that, many Christian traditions uh, refer to Mary Magdalene as the apostle to the apostles. Now in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, the apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But ironically, the very first news of that first Easter was not good news at all. Uh, it was terrible news. Mary Magdalene brought to the disciples, that's to Simon Peter and the other disciple who we know is John. She went running to tell them that the body of Jesus had been taken and we don't know where they have laid him, she said. What a shock that must have been. I mean, over the previous two days, they had seen Jesus betrayed, arrested, illegally tried and convicted, and then beaten, crucified, dead, and buried. It was a devastating turn of events for Jesus' followers. And now, to top it all off, his body had disappeared from the tomb. Stolen? How? Why? Who could move that huge slab of stone from the tomb and take away his body. Well, we can only imagine how stunned and confused the disciples would have been on hearing this news. After all, they'd already been through. You know, a few years after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, there was an attempt to steal his body and hold it for ransom. And the whole American nation was shocked. But the plot was foiled and the body snatchers were captured. And Lincoln's body was later reburied, and this time in a coffin encased in a steel cage and set into tons of concrete, never to be stolen again. But according to Mary, Jesus' tomb was now empty, and the body was gone. 
And so, to confirm what Mary told them, Peter and John set out at a run for the tomb. And uh, Mary must have followed along behind. And there they saw what Mary had seen. An open tomb with a stone rolled away. But Peter and John go a little further. They actually entered the tomb itself. And there they see the winding sheet that had wrapped Jesus' body, lying there unoccupied like the flattened shell of a cocoon, and the headcloth folded up separately. Now John, who is himself the author of this gospel, says in verse 8b that he saw and believed. But believed what? Believed that Jesus had risen? Or just believed what Mary had told them was true, that the tomb was empty and his body was gone. Now other preachers and writers, including myself, have often thought that on seeing the empty tomb and the burial cross that John immediately believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. But the next verse, verse 9, says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So it kind of suggests that John did maybe not yet believe that Jesus had risen. He believed as much as Mary had told them because you know, even Mary so far had no inkling of a resurrection. It says that Peter and John just went back home. They didn't know what to make of it all. But they didn't yet believe in a resurrection. Now in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, the Apostle Paul makes a blunt statement. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. He's saying here that there's no point in even being a Christian if Jesus did not rise from the dead. And it's true. Everything about the Christian faith rests on the resurrection of Jesus. It's the truth that validates everything else. Otherwise, Jesus was just a good man who died for a lost cause. So these first nine verses we looked at here in John 20 point to two things that I want us to understand today about coming to faith in the risen Christ. One is that coming to faith in the resurrected Jesus depends on a supernatural work of God because we don't have our own ability to believe. We don't have it in us to produce genuine faith in Christ. It's impossible without God's enabling. And the other thing we need to understand about coming to faith in the risen Jesus is that it's also a rational process that's based on evidence. And we'll get to that later. So resurrection faith is an act of our, our, our whole person. You know, it involves our intellect, as well as our spirit, our will, and our emotions. But Christian faith does require God's enabling. So it's also based on actual evidence that is grasped rationally. And in this passage in John, we find some of the most important rational evidence that the Bible offers us. So let's look at what we find here. Keep in mind that earlier on, Jesus had told the disciples on three separate occasions that when they get to Jerusalem, he must be killed and after three days rise again. And so he's told them this again and again about his coming death and also about his resurrection. 
In fact, so many people heard Jesus say this, that after his crucifixion, his enemies made sure that an armed guard was standing stationed at the tomb. They said in Matthew 27, 64, otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. So in view of all that Jesus had told them, why weren't Mary and the disciples camped out at the tomb there all night waiting for a miracle, waiting for his resurrection? Were they expecting it? Doesn't seem so. Why, in spite of Jesus forewarning them again and again, does Mary then, when she sees the empty tomb, immediately run back saying in verse 2b, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter and John too. Why, when they see the empty tomb and the empty grave clothes, do they go back home scratching their heads, wondering what happened? They're trying to process what they saw. And maybe they're thinking, well, if somebody took the body, then why did they take off the grave clothes? And why did they leave those linen cloths all nice and neatly folded? It just didn't make sense. But why did neither Mary nor the disciples say, oh yeah, Jesus said he would rise again. Could it be? But no, it doesn't even seem to occur to them. They're staring right at the empty tomb and they can't see the truth. They can't process it. And that's because belief in the person and work of the risen Jesus does not come naturally to anyone. The theologians call this inability. They recognize that we can't produce saving faith in Jesus all by ourselves. We're not able to. The message might be clear. The evidence may confront us but we all have an inherent sort of spiritual blindness that keeps us from seeing the truth until our eyes are opened. So this passage is teaching us that we're not capable of belief in the risen Jesus outside of God's enabling here. That is, without Jesus coming and helping you. True Christian faith without God's supernatural involvement is impossible for us. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 19, 26, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Maybe some of you remember a, a time when you struggled to believe in Christ. But when then one day you, you kind of woke up and you realized you believed. You couldn't explain it, you didn't uh, know how, but you suddenly had faith. C.S. Lewis, great writer, writes about how he struggled with believing in Christ. And he, he says one day he got on a bus not believing, but by the time he got off the bus, he did believe. <laughs> he couldn't explain it except that God has supernaturally enabled faith in him. It happens differently with different people, but God's spirit has to quicken faith in us. So coming to faith in Jesus is not our own accomplishment. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Both grace and faith are God's gift to us. So this passage teaches that we aren't really capable of belief in Jesus without outside help, without God's enabling here, without Jesus coming to you and encountering you in some way. 
And this is what we see here in the next verses of John 20. After Peter and John return home from the empty tomb, verse 11a says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She even saw two angels seated where Jesus' body had lain. And they asked her, Woman, why are you weeping? But it just doesn't yet register for her what all this really means. If she understood it, she wouldn't be weeping. She wouldn't be looking for a corpse that had been moved, but for a Lord who had been raised. But Mary's response to the angels is still the same here. Verse 13b, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. But then, as she turns around there by the tomb, she sees a man. And with tears blurring her eyes, she she thinks he's the caretaker of the garden. And he too asks her, woman, why are you weeping? And still unable to see the truth here, though he's standing there before her, that it is the risen Christ, she says to him in verse 15b, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus was right there, but she couldn't see it. You know, Mary's a lot like us, you know, when we find ourselves in a distressing situation. Even if you're a Christian, you sometimes forget the promises of God and the things that he has said. And you get anxious and upset rather than trusting him. I love the story of the great reformer, Martin Luther, who once spent three days in a dark depression over something that had gone wrong. And on the third day, his wife came downstairs dressed in black mourning clothes. (laughs) Who's dead? Luther asked. God's dead, she said. He asked, well, what do you mean God's dead? God can't die. (laughs) She said, well, the way you've been acting, I was sure he had. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes that's how it is with us. So Jesus here makes another effort to break through to Mary's heart. And he does it with a simple word, Mary. That was the vital encounter. That's what unlocked her faith. You know, ten chapters earlier in this gospel, Jesus had said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. They know my voice. I call them by name. And you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing to discover that someone knows you by name, It unlocks something inside of you. And Jesus, the good shepherd, knows you by name. He knows how to unlock who you are. And he wants to release your faith if you will let him. He called her by name. Writer and pastor Timothy Keller says, Real faith is always personal. If you only believe that Jesus died to forgive people in general for their sins, but you don't believe that Jesus died for you, you aren't taking hold of Jesus by faith. You haven't heard him call you by name. So Mary would never have found Jesus unless he had come to her. Her faith comes to her by grace. She doesn't do it on her own. And you and I need Jesus' help, too. So we need to ask him for it. We need to be open to his help. He would love to reveal himself to us. 
Again, Timothy Keller says, if you are very concerned about finding faith in Jesus, that might actually be a sign that he is already helping you get there. We aren't even capable of truly wanting Jesus without his help. A sense of Jesus' absence might be a sign of his presence, a sign that he's working already in your life. So like with Mary, uh, Jesus might be at your side right now. But you just can't see it. Mary's faith was awoken when he heard him say her name, and it's then that she actually, it says, tries to hold on to Jesus, as if to say, I, I lost you once and I'll never let you go again. But Jesus says to her in verse 17a, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. What does that mean? Well, Mary wants him to stay with her just as he is. But Jesus is saying, in effect, no, when I ascend to the Father, I won't be leaving you. There's a new relationship that's coming into being here. It's one that's more wonderful and closer than ever before. And when I ascend to the Father, I will send you my spirit and my nearness will be complete. And you can know my presence, peace and love anytime, day or night. And then he says to her, now go, tell my brothers. So Mary's newfound faith means that she's not to keep it all to herself, but to go and, and share the good news. And that's what she does. It says in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Mary's journey to faith here is complete, and uh, she becomes the first Christian. You know, Jesus' followers weren't yet called Christians at this point. That would come later. But she's a person who not only believes in the risen Christ, but also professes the good news of Jesus to others. She's already acting on Jesus' great commission to go and tell. So through Mary, we've seen that uh, coming to faith in the risen Christ is a supernatural and a, a very personal encounter with Jesus himself. And for each person who trusts in Christ, that experience will be a little different. Jesus reaches us all in different ways, but one way or another, we still can't come to faith without his enabling, however he chooses to do that. Will you let him reveal himself to you? As I said earlier, coming to faith is also a rational process based on real evidence. And there's lots of excellent books that have been written on the evidence for the resurrection. But you know, people have often said, oh, the resurrection accounts, they were, they're just made up stories here. And there have been many efforts to discredit the resurrection. But those efforts have also been refuted by real good logical explanations. So I just want to mention three of these issues for us to ponder on Easter Sunday. First of all, Modern people often think that the ancient people of the Bible were very superstitious, and therefore gullible about claims of Jesus' resurrection. But that's not what we see in these gospel accounts. 
As we've seen here, the disciples were not expecting Jesus' resurrection at all. They were just as unbelieving as modern people would be. It was just as unimaginable to them as it is for most people today. And so the evidence that convinced them of the resurrection and helped them to faith would likely be convincing for us too. Secondly, who was the first eyewitness to the resurrection? Well, John tells us it was Mary Magdalene, a woman. All the historians and the Bible experts tell us that in those times, women could not testify in a Jewish or a Roman court. A woman's testimony was considered unreliable and untrustworthy as evidence. So if the gospel writers were just inventing a story about the resurrection to promote their religious movement, why then would they make a woman the first eyewitness? In the Gospels, the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection are the women. So why are women in these accounts at all if their testimony was considered unreliable? Because that's how it happened. Because that's how it was. Mary and the other women were the first witnesses. And there's no motive or incentive for the gospel writers to make that up. That's how it happened. And thirdly, only something as dramatic as the resurrection could have caused Jesus' followers uh, to very soon after the resurrection to start worshiping on Sunday. Rather than on on the Jewish Sabbath, which is Saturday, day from which the time of Moses onward was was set aside as holy, but now eventually replacing, but then adding on to it Sunday, Resurrection Day. Nothing short of the bodily resurrection of Jesus can adequately explain the rise of Sunday on the Lord's Day and the Easter faith that began soon after the resurrection. Again, Timothy Keller says, Christian faith is much more than being rational, but it is certainly not less than being rational. So faith depends on a supernatural work of God, but it's also based on evidence. In fact, science tells us that if there's anything that constitutes infallible proof, it's the repetition of the same experiment when the results are the same every time. Jesus rose from the dead, And Mary encountered him, experiment one. The other women encountered him, experiment two. The disciples encountered him, experiment three. The apostle Paul later encountered him on the Damascus road, experiment four. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 6a, Paul writes, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Experiment five. That's a lot of empirical evidence for the resurrection. And even in the face of terrible opposition throughout history, the resurrection resurrection faith has continued through the centuries to be resilient because God enables it and the evidence supports it. In closing, there was a, a man named Nikolai Bukharin. He was a powerful Russian communist leader. And in 1930, he went to Kiev 
that city in Ukraine that's so recently come under attack. And he went to address a huge assembly on the subject of atheism. And for a full hour, he argued powerfully against Christianity and against the resurrection of Christ. And he ended by saying, are there any questions? And a deafening silence filled the auditorium. But then one man got up and he came up to the platform and he stood near that communist leader. And he looked over the vast crowd for a minute and then he shouted the ancient greeting well known in the Russian Orthodox Church. He is risen! And the entire audience rose as one person in response that came like a crashing thunder. He is risen indeed! An overwhelming affirmation of faith. And so I say to you this morning, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. Worship team, come and lead us in a song.